You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The U.S. intelligence community remains convinced the bears are up to no good. Finland experienced elevated rates of cyber attack during the Helsinki summit, mostly Chinese espionage. The hacker Anarchy assembled an 18,000-member botnet in less than a day using known vulnerabilities. Crooks monetize stolen credit cards through online games. Amazon works to induce better AWS configurations. The U.K.'s annual report on Huawei is out. And we've got some phishing campaign notes. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 20th, 2018. The U.S. intelligence community remains convinced that the threat of Russian cyber attacks is real and imminent. Director of National Intelligence Coates reiterated this conclusion at the Aspen Security Forum this week. Speaking of influence operations, he said, quote, It's undeniable that the Russians are taking the lead on this. Basically, they are the ones that are trying to undermine our basic values, divide us with our allies. They are the ones that are trying to wreak havoc over our election process. We need to call them out on that. It's critical that we do so and then take steps to make sure that they're not able to do this with an election coming up. End quote. The U.S. Department of Justice has also announced its intention of alerting the public when foreign attempts to influence or interfere with elections are detected. As often happens during high-profile events, Finland experienced heightened cyber attack rates during the Russo-American summit. This is the conclusion security firm F5 reached this week. As with earlier U.S.-North Korean meetings in Singapore, IoT devices were particularly targeted. There's an apparent shift in which parties were interested, however. This time, the espionage attempts seem to have come largely from China. The Kim-Trump meetings attracted more Russian attention, with the bears snuffling around Singapore. A large 18,000-strong botnet was swiftly assembled by a malware author who goes by the nom de hack Anarchy, probably the same individual also known as Wicked. He or she exploited routers using the well-known vulnerability CVE-2017-17215. What's disturbing is not the negligible damage, but the ease and speed with which Anarchy pulled the botnet together. What botmaster Anarchy, or if you prefer Wicked, was up to with the escapade isn't entirely clear. He was certainly counting coup and doing some chest-thumping, according to a report in Bleeping Computer. But again, the swift growth of his bot herd is disconcerting. You ever play Clash of Clans? Well, sure you do. You might as well admit it. There's no shame, and we're not here to judge. Have you ever bought gems or spell books? Sure you have. You've got a credit card, haven't you? Or maybe you've got your parents' credit card. 
still staying at home. Alas, real bad guys are infesting Clash of Clans, and not only the village and the builder base, but other games as well, with Clash Royale and Marvel Contest of Champions also being mentioned in dispatches. Security firm Chromtech, well known for their exposure of misconfigured AWS S3 buckets, rains on our gaming parade with this bit of news. Criminals are using popular online games to launder money. They purchase in-game stuff with dirty money and then resell their stuff, often in the form of player profiles, for legitimate money in various third-party gamer markets. So, here's some gamer social responsibility for you. If you're wheeling and dealing in-game currency, potions, and even dark elixir, you may be serving as an unwitting money mule for the cyber mob. By the way, our Clash of Clans desk tells us that you'll get the most bang for your buck if you level up giants, stealth archers, and barbarians first, but we suspect their analysis will be controversial, if only because of the bias it displays in favor of ground units and against dragons. Talk amongst yourselves. To return to Chromtech's investigations, they continue to note that people still don't configure their Amazon Web Service S3 data buckets in a way that would render them inaccessible from the bigger Internet. We mentioned earlier this week their disclosure they'd found exposed U.S. voter information in a bucket left out by the robo-calling firm RoboSent. They also found an unsecured MongoDB database left open by the criminals who compiled it, presumably inadvertently. The criminal exposure of personal information is regrettable, but their self-exposure is not. So good hunting, police. But one does hope that legitimate users of cloud services get some help working more securely. To that end, Amazon is experimenting with two tools, which they're calling Tyros and Zelkova, that may help developers avoid AWS misconfiguration. Tyros maps network connections and thus can display unexpected and unintended access from the Internet. Zelkova benchmarks S3 buckets against other elements of an enterprise's infrastructure and helps reveal how permissive an AWS configuration is in comparison to the rest of the infrastructure. Both tools are intended to show you misconfigurations before they bite you. The UK government's Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center reports that Huawei products had underlying engineering issues that affected national security, but that these seem to have been mitigated. Huawei is spinning the report as good news. That the British government has an organization whose job it is to keep an eye on whether Huawei might prove a security problem is instructive, indicating both awareness of risk and the degree to which British infrastructure is entangled with the Chinese company. Finally, you may have received scam emails with dubious attachments that appear to come from British universities. An ongoing criminal campaign spoofs emails from their domains. We've been noticing them. Our gunnery desk keeps getting emails from the University of Wales St. David Trinity, inviting them to open the attached invoice. They thought at first it was a really aggressive fundraising campaign, but no, it's a scam. Tell every member of your clan. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Zulfikar Ramsan. He is the Chief Technology Officer at RSA, a Dell Technologies business. Uh, Zuli, welcome back. Um, we wanted to talk today about cyber risk and quantifying that risk. What do you have to share with us today? Yes, you know, that's a huge problem. And I talk to a lot of our customers. They're interested in the idea of trying to mitigate or manage their risks fundamentally. But at the same time, very few of them have a consistent and rigorous view of what that means. And so I'll give you one example. Hmm. I was talking to the CISO of a major a major hospital, and they were telling me that their biggest risk was ransomware. And, you know, it, it, to a certain degree, you know, ransomware is an issue they have to deal with, but ransomware itself is not actually a risk. Ransomware is a class of threat. If that threat were applied to a particular asset and took advantage of a vulnerability on that asset and resulted in a loss for the organization, it's the amalgamation of all those elements, the likelihood that the event happens and the overall likelihood of the loss that occurs as a result of that event happening mm. that together really constitutes risk. And until you think about risk more holistically, it's hard to actually do anything that's going to be meaningful in terms of mitigating it. So in that situation, uh, the ransomware is, uh, is uh, the, the problem that could cause, the, for example, the hospital to not be able to treat patients. That's the true risk. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You have to look at both together because what happens is if you don't ask yourself, you have to ask yourself kind of two fundamental questions. Number one, how likely is an event to happen? The second question is, what is the actual loss that could occur if that event were to, were to happen? And that loss might be the initial loss. So for example, there may be you know, a patient loss. There could be the loss in terms of the actual ransom you have to pay out. But there are also secondary losses as well. Like for example, the cost of re-imaging systems or doing forensics works or hiring incident response teams, or in some cases, bringing in outside legal counsel. And we actually had one customer a while ago who, who spent about $30,000 in ransom payments. But if you looked at the overall loss of ransomware for that organization, it was almost $4 million when you counted all the things I just mentioned earlier. Hmm. So what are your recommendations? I mean, how do we, how do, we do a better job communicating that, that this is the way it needs to be approached? 
Well, that's a great question. I think fundamentally, the, the first recommendation is ultimately when you think about businesses and what they're trying to achieve, it's very different than what a security practitioner tends to talk about. Security practitioners tend to talk about threats a lot. The reality is that businesses care about risks fundamentally. And so the first thing you have to do is, number one, draw a distinction between what's possible versus what's probable. Many threats are possible in the environment. A small number are actually going to be probable threats you have to worry about. And then consider the loss associated with those threats. The second piece of advice I have is to avoid trying to aim for perfection. Look, there's nobody who can quantify cyber risk perfectly. That's just not going to happen. But what we can actually hope to do is have a consistent and rigorous framework that accounts for many of the elements that talks about risk in the same way across different parts of the organization. It's as if somebody were to tell you, would you get on a plane if you found out that the engineers who designed that plane didn't have a common definition of terms like mass or acceleration or velocity? Hmm. The answer is probably no. The same thing should apply to cyber risk. We have to have a constant and consistent definition of what it means. And then finally, the third element that I talk about is the idea of focusing on VIA or VIA, which is visibility inside an action. If you're trying to mitigate risk, you have to be able to measure and assess your risk. And that requires having visibility into your environment because you can't measure or assess what you can't see. But visibility on its own, while necessary, is not sufficient. Visibility can lead to this data landfill problem very quickly. What you then need to do is be able to glean insights from that visibility through analytics, be able to identify what it is that matters most. And then finally, you have to be able to take a set of actions against those insights. And it's those actions that ultimately will end up mitigating your risk and you come back full circle through that loop. The goal for organizations should be to go through that loop as frequently as they can and try to tackle a little bit along the way each time as part of their overall journey and being able to manage their digital risk. All right. Zulfikar Ramzan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Mark Peters. He's the author of the recently published book, Cashing In on Cyber Power. He currently works in the United States Air Force as a career intelligence officer with over 21 years of experience there. His book, Cashing In on Cyber Power, analyzes over 10 years of cyber attacks, seeking to understand where state and non-state actors use those tools to generate economic effects through today's cyber-connected world. When I started out doing my research, I was actually looking for how people would do a an identity-based attack in cyber, how they look at, you know, kind of a character assassination through cyber. Uh, and that really wasn't working, and it really wasn't supported very well. Um, so I started looking at the traditional military analysis of strategy for the, the dime aspect of the diplomatic information, military, and economic look, and to see uh, where the different characteristics were. And I thought, you know what, it might be easier to do an economic-based attack uh, than it would be to do a military or information or, or some other type of attack in cyberspace, so I looked to see if I could find enough data to actually compare those numbers in a, a useful fashion. So take us through, what did your research uh, uncover? 
So actually, most of the attacks, and this was looking at, I used the, the Center for Strategic uh, and International Studies, the CSIS guys. They did a, a look at uh, cyber attacks or significant cyber attacks since 2006. So I started out using their characterization to identify attacks. Uh, and it really uncovered that most of the attacks for this period from about 2006 to 2015, or at least once I was able to uncover and get useful data on, uh, secondary sources of data, were mostly still in the information sector. Uh, and then after the information sector came economic as a, a secondary source, uh, information economic, uh, and then diplomatic was the third. Now, when you compare what's going on today in the cyber domain to what has happened historically uh, throughout time, how have things changed and how much are they just new versions of, of old tactics? Uh, the numbers have gone up significantly. Uh, because I was trying to look more at the functions and the actual delve into which techniques they were using, as a, uh, I didn't really get into a lot of those numbers. Uh, what I found in going through is I picked up a couple of interesting items to also do case studies on. And the ones I wound up doing case studies on was uh, the Kodan company in Australia lost some IP to China doing gold detectors. I looked at some TTP data losses for Japan that actually slowed their engagement with that process. Uh, and then I did get a look at the initial uh, Ukrainian cyber attack in 2015. When it comes to uh, this no this notion of disproportionality, um, I think many people would agree that the, the cyber realm is an area where, certainly compared to having a military, uh, you can get a, a strong outcome uh, through a less investment than, uh, you know, in terms of influence on, on a global nature, uh, you can get a lot done without spending a lot of money. I think that all depends on how much influence you want to have and what impact you want to have. Hmm. Uh, the criminal actors actually did have more economic attacks uh, than the state-based actors overall. And I, I think, you know, if a state wanted to go out and steal all the money from the ATMs, they could do it with significantly lower investment than the criminals are. But I don't think that's in their best interest or shows the best uh, reactions to them in the long run, right? You don't want to be known as the state that uh, stole everybody's ATMs. Where do you suppose we're headed when it comes to international norms in terms of both diplomacy and economics and, and, and how that would bleed over into the military? I think like a lot of things, it'll probably stay fuzzy for a while. Uh, a lot of the work I did was with the interdependence uh, by Joseph Nye, who's been a big, uh, and um, Kiahin had been the, the big proponents of that or the big uh, initial movers in that area. Uh, and that means that the more channels and the more dependent we get on somebody else, the more these little movements, even in that cyberspace, have effects on everyone else in that space. So as more people depend on it, and we talk about uh, just basic internet connections, we talk about an internet of things, and you know, possibly even a concept of a, like a global cyber commons, uh, the more difficult it will get to establish those red lines because everybody will be depending on it. Or the easier that every, you take everything down, uh, your entire economy is going to collapse or your entire uh, – everybody's going to be upset. Uh, you know, you look at getting snow in Maryland and how easy a, a couple inches of snow shuts down the whole city. If you kind of expand that analogy to a cyber, uh, a couple little things done by a state in a cyber, if they shut down uh, major portions of that economy, uh, people are going to complain fairly quickly. Hey, what would your advice be to policymakers? Ha having done the research you did in writing the book – uh, what would you share with them? I would show they just need to continue looking at the area. They need to continue looking at a bunch of different aspects of the area. Uh, we tend to over-focus on like the CVE and the OWASP and to look at what the actual technique is and how to stop an initial malware attack without taking that expanded view to broaden out, look at kind of the strategy and the trends for where things are going. If you look at more of a strategy-based aspect, we get a, a better look at 
maybe how we need to prepare and how we need to plan where we can set those red lines based on the fact that we know what our strategy, uh, we know what our desired goals are, the objectives, uh, and then we can move out from there. It seems to me like it's been a real interesting shift over the past couple of decades about how how much of the world economy depends on the cyber domain. Um, and, and, and of course, with that, part of that evolution has been the cropping up of, of these bad actors, you know, criminals working there, but also uh, the ability of nation states to leverage that space as well. Uh, I think that's a true factor, and I think we don't actually look at all the aspects of cyber we can get. I had written an article on the development of this book uh, talking about how we could use cyber tools to generate uh, better sanction effects when we talk about doing economic and financial sanctions. Hmm. Uh, that We're still doing a lot of those through the, uh, the paper aspect and identifying things when we look at that uh, if we had the ability or we had the cyber tool, we could go out and maybe uh, block a bank and then use that money to support the people we said we were going to support along the way. Uh, you know, there are other aspects to it. There are other things that we can do uh, with those cyber tools, but we're, we're focused on using them in the military, not that whole government kind of approach. That's Mark Peters. The title of the book is Cashing In on Cyber Power. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.